Can you imagine running for 60 hours, 160 kilometers, collapsing at the finish line, and then finding out you were six seconds too late to actually even be classed as having finished the race? I can't, I hate running, but you might. It'd be devastating. They're all saying, did you hear the people saying, it's okay, you tried your best, you still achieved something great. No, you didn't, you lost. You didn't finish the race. You don't get written to history saying that you finished this impossible marathon. You might as well not have started. The race, the result is the same. In fact, this guy and I have something completely in common. Neither of us have finished the, the Canadian endurance events. There is no difference between the two of us. Might be a bit harsh. It is only a race in Canada. It doesn't matter that much. Yes, you and I are in a race. Not that race. We're in a race that matters far more deeply. And the important result isn't whether you come first or second or third. The important result is that you finish. And what's at stake is nothing less than life and death. That's what the book of Hebrews has been on about as we've been looking at it for the last term and a bit. It's been building this glorious picture of all the wonderful things we have in Christ. Forgiveness of sins, past, present and future the assurance of salvation through our high priest, that we can enter into God's rest and enjoy it with him eternally. It is glorious. Hebrews has also made it clear that these things are ours only if we stick with Jesus to the end. And so the key message of Hebrews has been, hold fast to Jesus. Don't let go of him. Don't stop no matter what. Don't collapse before the finish line. Because without Jesus, we've got nothing. In fact, worse than nothing. With Jesus, there's salvation, assurance of forgiveness, eternal rest. But without him, there is judgment, righteous punishment for sins, hell. So hold fast. Run the race. Finish it. There's nothing more important in life than getting to the end of this race. And so what's going to help us keep going? What's going to help us reach the end? What's going to help us in this most important task? Well, that's what this passage is all about. So I'm going to look at what's going to help us run the race and reach the end. Let's see what God has to say. And I apologize for my voice. <clears throat> Point one. First thing we need to do is we need to recognize reality. There's four realities in this passage, realities that if we get them, will really help us reach the end. So have, let's have a look at them. The first one is in verse 1, or a bunch of them are in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and... Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need to recognize that the Christian life is an endurance event. It's long and it's hard. We get that word endure four times. It's not glide and coast along because it's easy. No, we're called to endure. The word for race is the Greek word agonos, from which we get the word agony. Right? It's not like going for a stroll at Maruba with a latte. No, a key reality we need to get is that the Christian life is long and it's hard. And if we don't get that, 
you will struggle to reach the end. If you think the Christian life is going from victory to victory, happy one day to perfect the next, that you'll be healthier and wealthier, that you'll suffer less, that things will always be better for you now that God is on your side, or if you're surprised when you find the Christian life hard and you start to ask God, why is this my experience, as if this shouldn't be the case, then you've misunderstood. Misunderstood the Bible and you'll struggle to reach the end because your expectations are wrong. What will happen when you have long periods of struggle? What will happen when you're finding it hard to live the Christian life? You'll think this isn't right. It shouldn't be like this. What's going on? Maybe this God thing isn't for me. Maybe I'm on the wrong side. You don't recognize this reality that the Christian life is long and it's hard. It will be hard to endure. It's actually why people who suffer early on in their Christian life are usually very well prepared to endure. Those who have to leave their family to become a Christian. Those who have to wrestle deeply for themselves what God has to say about sexuality and how they might live. They are well aware that the Christian life is long and hard and they are well prepared to endure. Have you personally understood and wrestled with this reality? Did you sign up? thinking it would be easy. Do you have the wrong expectations of the Christian life? It'll be hard to endure if we don't get this reality. The Christian life is long and hard. It's an endurance event. But that's not all. The second reality we need to recognise is that it's worth it. The Christian life is long and it's hard, but it's absolutely worth it. Have a look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Those words, therefore, and since, they get us to, to look back and draw on what we're learning in chapter 11, kind of as motivation and encouragement to help us run the race now. What did we see, do you remember? We saw a great cloud of witnesses. What were they witnessing to? There's a whole bunch of people who witness to the fact that the invisible things are worth living for more than the visible things. We saw ordinary and flawed people who lived by faith, knowing that God's promises were better and more worth living for than what everyone else could see in the present. Just go back to chapter 11, verse 24. You might not even have to flick a page. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. <clears throat> Moses was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, and so he could have had anything and everything you and I have ever wanted, right? Position, power, a mansion on the river, unlimited wealth, probably had free and private tours of the pyramids whenever he wanted them, I don't know when they were built, but maybe around then. And yet he gave them all up in order to be mistreated and identified with the people of God. How do you do that? Why would you do that? You'd never do it. Except that by faith, he saw the thing worth far more. Have a look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward 
Moses is just one example, in a whole crowd of witnesses who show that the invisible things of God, that great reward, is worth living for far more than what you can see, even in the face of great difficulty. And more than that, we see at the end of chapter 11, they were able to do that even though they didn't have the full picture that we have in Christ. And so we're told to be greatly encouraged from that cloud of witnesses. It is worth it. Reflect regularly on the things that we have in Christ. Dwell on what's to come when we're bodily in heaven with him, face to face with our Lord. Know deeply the reality that it is worth it. It'll help you run the race. The Christian life is long and hard, but it is absolutely worth it. The third reality to recognize is that there are things that can slow us down and trip us up. Have a look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The reality is that there are things in life that can slow us down and trip us up as we run the race. Things that, if we don't pay attention to them, can take us out of the race completely. And so it's critical that we pay attention to them and that we lay them aside. We've got two categories of things where to lay aside. The first are weights that weigh us down. These are things that aren't sin. They're good things given to enjoy with thanksgiving, but they can still weigh us down in the race. It's like turning up to a marathon wearing ankle weights, right? It's, it's not against the rules, but it's just dumb. It's not going to help you in the race. So we need to figure out what are the things that actually affect us, the weights that are affecting me that live out the Christian life. Are there things in your life that take up so much time and energy, that cause you so much stress that they, they gobble up your time and your energy or your mental space for things like investing in your church family, serving, investing in your kids to help them trust Jesus, spending deep time with the Lord yourself? Something that means that when you turn up to church in growth group, you're so wrecked that you can just never get much out of it or at least think beyond yourself. It could be anything right? A sport you play, a hobby, things your kids are involved in, TV, work, gaming. A particular one most of the experts tell us is, is technology. Uh, I'd love for you to go to the screen time section on your phone. Just show the person next to you how much, how many hours you spent on your phone or your laptop or gaming this week. It's okay, don't, don't, don't really do it. But imagine if I got you to do that. Be embarrassed. I would be deeply embarrassed. Technology is a good thing, a good gift with a whole bunch of good stuff in it, but it's also got some damaging things in it as well, right? Uh, social media, gaming, YouTube, you don't have the design, right? They're, they're designed to keep us on, to keep us scrolling, and they get money every time that we do it and an ad comes up. Uh, I listened to someone talking about how technology is actually designed to give us hits of dopamine. Have you heard of dopamine? It's kind of this drug in your brain that lets off that makes you feel good. They give us just small enough hits that it makes us feel good, but not enough that we just want to keep going and have a bit more and keep searching for more. Uh, you know that feeling when you keep scrolling and it just feels like something really good's about that, that video, if the next one's going to be really good, but it never does. I feel that. This guy said that, you know, obviously one issue is it just wastes a whole bunch of time. You can look at the screen time bit on your phone and it tells you this is how many hours you wasted this week. 
But more than that, it can actually demotivate us from doing things that take effort. Because if I can get that good feeling of dopamine from doing something super easy, why would I do hard things to get that same hit? And the issue is, as we know, most things that are worthwhile actually take hard work. And it's the same in the Christian life. And so the effect of things like social media can, can actually make it harder for us to wrestle deeply with God in prayer, wrestle in the scriptures daily, to think deeply, to serve sacrificially, to, to do hard things for the Lord. This may be a weight that we need to shed or lay aside in some way. That's the first category. Lay aside that which weighs you down. Second thing is we're told to lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Uh, falling into a clinging sin can shipwreck your faith because you can slip into unrepentance, which is a thing that can take you out. Hebrews wants us to take sin seriously if we're going to run the race. Uh, at the end of our passage, the, the preacher brings up a few sins that have tripped up people before. Have a look at verse 15. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral, or that no one is unholy like Esau, who Esau was enticed by the worldly things more than the things of God. What sin do you need to repent of and not let sit in unrepentance and ask Jesus to help you lay it aside? knowing that in Christ your sins are dealt with and you're empowered to grow. If we want to finish the race, we need to recognise the reality that there are weights and sins and things that can slow us down, things that can trip us up and make it hard to reach the end. The fourth reality we need to recognise if we're going to finish the race is a right perspective of discipline. Have a look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, how do people tend to think about our present circumstances in relation to God? I reckon we think that God is being good to me, he's, he's with me and for me, if things are going well. But if things are not going well, we think maybe he's not with me, maybe he's not for me, maybe he's not good to me, or, or just not able to help. Now in church, we'd never think it or say it like that, obviously, right? But when something good happens in my life, I, I get a new job, a promotion, I get better from sickness, I'm hoping that happens to me soon, I have a good relationship, no one at work or school or uni is having a go at me for being a Christian. Something goes well, what do we say? We come to church on Sunday and we say, God's been really kind to me this week. He's been good to me. I've been blessed. And he has been good to us in those things. But I wonder if we suddenly think that when I lose my job, that when I'm sick and I'm not getting better, when people are having a go at me for being a Christian, when bad or hard things happen, do we suddenly think, I wonder if God is not being kind to me, that he's not blessing me, that he's not being good to me, and he is for that person. Have a look at verse 6. 
For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Your suffering isn't a sign that God is not with you, that he's not for you, that he's not being good to you. It's actually the very sign that he loves you, confirming that you are his child. Verse 7. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're not disciplined by your father, it's actually a sign you're not his child. Verse 9, we don't question our father's love for us, even when they discipline us imperfectly. How much more should we understand that our heavenly father loves us when he disciplines us with his perfect love? Now, what is discipline? It's not punishment for sin. Jesus has dealt with that. It's not like a kid when they've done something naughty and you're busting. In this context, it's particularly talking about suffering for being a Christian. That's what was going on for the Hebrews. They, they lost their houses. They were outcasted from their friends and family. They suffered persecution for being Christian. Now, would it be easy when all that's happening think about giving up, wouldn't it? God was with me or for me, this wouldn't be happening, right? But actually, this is the very reason you can know God loves you, that you are his child. And more than that, he's not just disciplining you so that you know that he loves you, right? Couldn't you just give us a hug instead? That works a bit better with my five love languages, right? I'm not a disciplined guy, I'm a hug guy. No, verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. This is God using opposition to fortify, to strengthen and grow his children in holiness. And so if you are copying it for your faith, or if you're questioning where is God in our present climate where there's more and more opposition to being Christian, right? Or if you're feeling worried about where things are going in the future, where, where you see the potential for real suffering, for real persecution for being a Christian in Australia, have you seen that? And you're thinking, where is God in all this? How can he let that happen? How can he possibly be with us or for us or say that he loves us when that is happening? We need to recognise the reality of God's discipline. We, we need a right perspective. If we don't, We'll look around, see what's happening, and we'll think about giving up. If we do, we'll see God's loving hand behind it all, confirming that we are his children and that he's growing us in holiness to endure. We're going to run the race with endurance. We need to recognise reality, that the Christian life is long and it's hard that it's worth it, that weight and sin can trip us up so we need to lay it aside, and that discipline is a sign of God's love that he's using to grow us, not a sign of his absence that we might be crushed. If we get these realities, it'll help us greatly to run the Christian life. But even with all that, right, it's not enough on its own to get us to the very end of the race. So what is? Point two. Look to Jesus. Have a look from the end of verse one again. 
let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In what way? What, what kind of running should we do? Verse 2, looking to Jesus. A matter of running where you're looking to Jesus is the thing that will ensure you reach the finish line. What does that mean? It means to take deliberate notice of Jesus, to, to focus with concentration on him. What's the thing that you're going to see when you look at and focus on Jesus? What's the things that you'll see that'll help? Verse 2, we get four things. First, we'll see that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is, Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. In him is the fullness of salvation. That's what we've been looking at in Hebrews. Jesus is our high priest and perfect sacrifice whose once for all time offering dealt with our sin, past, present and future. He opened the way for salvation. He draws us to himself and he'll bring to completion that which he began in us. He's already run the race on our behalf. He's done it. He's the beginning, the end. He's brought all things. He's the founder and perfecter, beginning and end of our faith. If you're running the race and you're not sure if you're going to get to the end, if you're finding it hard, look to Jesus and be reminded and encouraged that he began your faith. He'll bring it to its perfect and complete end. He has already run the race for you. So you can run with great confidence as you look to Jesus. The second thing you'll see when you look to Jesus at the end of verse 2. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only is Jesus the beginning and the end of our faith, he's also able to help us in the present. Jesus is seated at the place of power on the throne, ruling over all things, looking after his people. When you're finding the race hard, look to Jesus. See him, the one who's seated on the throne, the powerful ruler who can help you. I can keep going because my Lord is on the throne. Third, you'll see that Jesus is the ultimate example of living for future joy. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What joy was there for Jesus in enduring the pain of the cross? In his dying and from suffocation as his lungs collapsed and his heart failed, what was the joy? It was the future joy of seeing sinners saved, bringing glory to his Father, the cloud of witnesses showed us a glimpse of how worthwhile it is to live for future joy, for the things they couldn't see. But Jesus shows us perfectly that the joy to come for us of being with Jesus in glory is so good that it's worth enduring anything now. Seeing Jesus' joy in the face of the cross will help you run the race. If you're here and you don't trust Jesus yet, this is the one thing to have a think about, take away, look into more. It's one of the things that blew me away when I first heard Christians talking about that they thought they had something so good that they were willing to endure anything now. It's unbelievable. We, we all want that kind of thing, right? Christians have it. Have a look into it. Come back. The last thing we see 
is that what the world sees as shameful is actually glorious. Do you see that phrase, despising the shame? That's a really helpful attitude when it comes to running the race. See, in the ancient world, killing someone on a cross was the ultimate, most humiliating, most kind of shameful thing you can do to a person. But Jesus despised the shame of the cross. That is, he treated the shame with contempt. He, he looked down on the shame. He shamed the shame. To the world, the cross is degrading, humiliating, shameful. But not to Jesus. To him, it is glorious. It's a moment of perfect obedience to his Father. A moment of saving sinners whom he loves. This is his moment of ultimate glory. The cross will always look shameful to those who are perishing. But not to Jesus. Not to us. This is a key truth that will help us finish the race. Recognizing that what the world sees as shameful isn't actually shameful. It's glorious. When the world mocks you and says that your faith, the things that you believe are shameful, when they look down on you and think, why do you believe this outdated nonsense? Fix your eyes on Jesus. See the one who embraced the shame of the cross, who despised the shame, knowing that what they see as shameful is actually glorious. So when you're at work, or uni, or, or school, and people will say, it is shameful for you to believe the things that you believe. Despise the shame. The world thinks it's shameful, but God and his truths are glorious. I can keep going, because what the world sees as shameful isn't actually shameful. I follow the one whose way is glorious to those who see it. The most important task in life is to finish the race. Hold fast to Jesus. To get us there, to help us get there, there's important realities we need to recognise. But more than that, there's an important saviour we need to look to. And in a moment, I'm going to give you time to reflect on and write a couple things down. Uh, I'd love for you to reflect on a reality that you want to impress on yourself more deeply. I'd love you to write down an aspect of Jesus that you want to see more clearly to help you run the race with endurance. But before we do that, I just want to point out one more thing, verse 15. Have a look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. If you run the race, but one of your brothers or sisters fails, then we fail. It's easy to hear this passage and think, this is just a whole bunch of stuff that I've got to do on my own. I'm going to go home by myself. This is just stuff I've got to learn and do. And We don't run the race on our own. We're not trying to compete our competitors. We run the race together, helping everyone reach the end. And so now I'm going to give you a moment to write down three things, and then Katie's going to come up to pray in a minute. I want you to write down a reality that you want to impress on yourself more, an aspect of Jesus that you want to see more clearly and think about how might you help your family run the race and reach the end. I'm going to give you about a minute or two to reflect and write some things down.
and Kay's going to come and pray for us with that stuff.